The reason why I show it is because Major John Reisman, played by Lee Marvin, is called to, to, to get 12 men who are military prisoners to join him in this uh, very perilous but really important mission uh, to go in behind enemy lines. Like a lot of World War II movies, you know from the very start that their mission is going to be successful. We just, we just know that that's going to happen. Uh, that always happens unless you're watching the film The Perfect Storm. And then you realize that it doesn't have a happy ending. Sorry to, sorry to ruin that for you if you ever watched that movie, but it always just comes back to my mind. But we know that it's going to be a successful mission. In the course of the mission, uh, there's a double tension. One of the tensions is, are the Germans going to get them first? Are the Germans going to kill them? And the second tension is, are they going to kill each other before the Germans get a chance? It came to mind whenever I was reading about King David's mighty man. It's recorded in Second Samuel and First Chronicles about a similar group of fairly raw military personnel who who fought alongside King David. Uh, there was uh, 30 men, and uh, there were three particularly who were, who were seen as uh, worthy of note. And so in 2 Samuel 23, we hear about some of their really courageous exploits. Uh, and one of them was whenever David was fighting the Philistines, and he was in a stronghold in the, in the cave of Adullam. And uh, David's hometown of Bethlehem had been captured by the Philistines, and he felt very deeply about this. And as he was surrounded by his men in a stronghold, he has this physical thirst. He wants a drink. And he says, probably sort of half out loud, he says that he would love to have a drink from the well at the gate of Bethlehem, his hometown. But what he doesn't know is that after he says those words, his three mighty men, his three right-hand men who were known for their bravery and, and their, their obedience to the king, went out, broke through enemy lines, and drew water from the well and brought it back to their king, King David. But when David receives the water, he doesn't drink it. He refuses to drink it. In fact, he holds up the water and he pours it out before the Lord. And he prays the Lord and says to the Lord, Lord, far be it from me that I should drink this. Because this, is this not the blood of the men who risked their lives for me? And he refuses to benefit and profit from the fact that these men had risked their lives for him. He refused to drink it. And so he said, is this not blood? In other words, he was saying, this is absolutely unthinkable that I could drink this. And so he, he pours it out. And I think those words of David help us to understand something of the really extraordinary teaching that we hear from the lips of Jesus today from John chapter 6. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. 
What Jesus was saying was this. He, he wasn't inviting his hearers to, to eat his physical flesh or to drink his physical blood. What he was saying was that eternal life is given to those who profit from Jesus giving his life. He's using a similar analogy to King David. He's saying, if you want to have the eternal life that I have on offer, he says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You need to profit from my death. Last week we looked at John chapter 1, that wonderful passage that we hear about John the Baptist saying, behold, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then two disciples, including Andrew, begin to follow him. And they ask, and they ask, and they ask for more and more, and they discover um, that God loves to answer prayer. God loves us to ask. God loves to give. And so we should always just keep on asking and keep on asking and keep on asking, particularly for the presence of God Himself, the Holy Spirit, in our lives, particularly for forgiveness and a true view of ourselves and of God and of transformation in our lives. But we can ask for anything, no matter how big and no matter how small. God loves to hear. He loves to answer. But in those words of Paul from his letter to the Ephesians, he loves to give immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. See, the thing is, the center of this chapter of John, chapter 6, is that the people come before Jesus, and they're asking for something, and Jesus does not give them what they want. So, in a way, this is like the… in a way, I want to sort of give the second part of what I said last week, and it's this. God is so good and loves us so much that He doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. And so the crowd come to Jesus, and this chapter 6 begins with the feeding of the 5,000. And people are just amazed that with a few fish and a few loaves, Jesus feeds over 5,000 people, and they want to make Him king. It's a thread that runs through the entire Bible and through the Old Testament. God calls His people Israel to be unique people and not to have a king so that He can work through them in an amazing way to reach the whole world. And they say, we've had enough. We don't want it. We want a king. We want Saul. We want to be like the other nations. We don't want to be special or unique. We do want this hard calling. We want to have an earthly king. And so again, as Jesus feeds them, again comes this cry from the people of Israel. We want a king who will feed us and will lead us against the Romans to free us. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be that king. He doesn't give them what they want. He withdraws to a mountain to be with his father and to talk to his father. And eventually when he comes back down again, the crowd find him. They seek him out, and Jesus has these, I suppose, stern but encouraging words to say to them. And so the first thing he says is, you've come to find me because the food that I gave you filled your belly. Don't look for the type of food that fills your belly. Look for the type of food that feeds your soul. And he says, the Son of Man will give you this food. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
You received manna in the, old, in the olden days through Moses. But Jesus is saying, there's one who's come among you who will give you the gift of the eternal bread of heaven. He will give you life in all of its fullness. And Jesus is trying to explain, and he's standing before you. And history is repeating itself because the people grumbled to Moses in the wilderness because they wanted food and they got manna and yet they still died. Jesus is standing there again as a crowd before him. History is repeating itself and they're grumbling and they're saying, be our king and feed us just like you fed us last month and keep feeding us and free us from the Romans. And Jesus says, if you would only recognize that if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, that you will have eternal life and I will raise you up at the last day. There's some verses in, in the middle of the Old Testament in Job. Job is an amazing book about um, human beings, a man wrestling with understanding the will of God, about suffering and about how God's purposes come to fulfillment. And he says these words that we may often hear at funeral services. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another how my heart yearns within me. It's amazing that God revealed to Job by the Holy Spirit, as Job declares, in the midst of the pain and the confusion of my life, I believe that my Redeemer will stand on the dust of the earth. And even though my skin rots and he dies, he believes that somehow, by the grace of God, he will see his Redeemer with his own eyes. Not someone else, but he will see him with his own eyes. Isn't that our Christian faith? That's what Jesus is saying to the people here before him. He's saying, if you profit from my death, I will raise you up at the last day. Paul the Apostle explains what this is all about. He explains the fact that Jesus Christ died for us, has been raised for us, and he has a resurrection body, which is the first fruits of the new creation that God has made. Uh, yesterday we were out for a lovely walk down by the coast, and there were these lovely uh, blackberry bushes, <coughs> and um, most of them were little hard green things. But as we walked along, there was one bush. I didn't jump over the fence to get them, but there were these big, black, delicious blackberries. They were just ready for eating. They're the first fruits. They're the first appearing of the thing that God has done. And so when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first sign of the harvest of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, that's already happened, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, said Jesus, has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. When Jesus returns, all those who belong to Him, He will raise them up at the last day. And you and I will have new resurrection bodies, just like the body of Jesus Christ. It'll be our body. It'll be a new body. Paul talks about it, that it's as if our, our perishable body is like a seed that's buried in the ground. It dies. And then God brings the little thing to life. But somehow, like the body of Jesus Christ, it will be, yes, a new body. It'll be a body that can eat. It'll be a body that can be touched. It will be a body that will be able to live in the midst of a new heaven and a new earth with no sickness and no tears and no death. It will be a life that will be go, on, go on forever. I was just wondering this morning, you know, I wonder if these discoveries about our, our DNA in recent decades, you know, isn't wonderful that we, we're beginning to understand that even through a code, even through a code that God has brought about life in our bodies, that that can be recognized, it can even be documented, and that God is going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth in which we will have new bodies, somehow recognizable to the ones we have now, and yet they'll be brand new. And yet, like Jesus, we must follow Him. We will pass through death unless He comes before that. And we will be raised to life. If we belong to Him, we will have everlasting life. And so Jesus Christ is saying, if you profit from my death, all this will be yours. The people want food for their bellies for that day. Jesus is saying, I have a gift that's for every human being, and it's the gift of eternal life. And eternal life has, has, this, has this depth in the here and now, which is our, our current being known and known by our heavenly Father. Eternal life is not just about the length of days. It's also about the quality of our lives. It's about living in the presence of God. That's why Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life not will have, whoever eats, eats and drinks has eternal life because eternal life begins in the here and now. And yet, eternal life going through death and through resurrection in Jesus Christ leads to everlasting life on a new heaven and a new earth with resurrection bodies. I know that my Redeemer lives, says Job, and at the last I will see Him, and I will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another, and how my soul longs for this.
It's a sobering fact, but in a lot of ways it occurs to me that we are like the dirty dozen. We faced death. The wages of sin is death, says Paul, and the reason why that is the case, what he's saying is the outcome of separation from God, the outcome of sinful, selfish living is being separated from the one who alone can give life. And if you're separated from the one who alone can give life, there is only one conclusion, and that is death. But the fact is, in the dirty dozen, Lee Marvin, playing John, Major John Reisman, he goes around and he asks them, do you want to just face death here in a military court-martial? Or do you want to come with me on a mission that is really, really dangerous? The thing is, everyone has a choice to say yes or no. And also as well, even more so than in that movie, we know what's going to happen. We know that victory is assured. We know the mission is a success. And we know that because Jesus on Easter Day was raised to life so that we know that God's plan has worked out. We know that the victory has already begun to rule out and that you and I are part of it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can commune with God the Father through Jesus Christ today. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live in an awareness of his presence. We know that we can be freed from guilt and shame. We know that we can have the fullness of Christ coming to dwell in us by his Spirit to move in us and to enable us increasingly to become just like Jesus Christ. And also as well, he's called us together. This morning we begin our, our series about our values as a church. Feast. Today is about fellowship. And there's these five core values to our church. And the one about fellowship is this, that we as a church community value a deep sense of, of love and support and responsibility for each other. Put in more basic terms, like in the dirty dozen, we need to go on God's mission with us. We need to go on God's mission with Him and not kill each other. So as we have communion today, it has a there's a past, a present, and a future aspect to it. We look back and we give, we give thanks for what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, of God, has done, that he has taken away the sins of the world. And we give, give thanks that we have a Redeemer and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has been raised to life. And today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we eat and drink, we do so in his presence, and we do so together because he's called us together. And he's called us to love him, and he's called us to love and support and have responsibility for each other. And there's also this future aspect to it, and it is this. We're looking forward together to the time when having profited from the life of Jesus Christ, we will stand before him 
and see him as he, as he is. And we'll see him as he is because we'll have the same type of body as he has. We will have resurrection bodies. New. Somehow similar to those we have now and yet brand new of a different type. And we'll stand together as those who belong to Christ in his presence. John's gospel, as I said last week, is a very sacramental gospel. And the reason why John wants to emphasize that that good spiritual gifts from God come in physical packages is because at the time there was this prevailing mindset called Gnosticism and it was basically this. Spiritual things are good, physical things are bad. What John wants to say in his gospel is this, the word of God became flesh. God's creation is good. Yes, it has been sullied. Yes, it's like a beautiful golden goblet that's been dipped in mud. But underneath, by the washing of Jesus Christ, it's still a beautiful goblet. And so today, we eat physical bread and we drink physical drink because God created creation to be good. And if the birth and life of Jesus Christ tells us anything, it is this. God gives good spiritual gifts in physical packages. He ever eats my flesh said Jesus, and drinks my blood, has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Shall we stand together?